friends. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, we're reading verses um, 12 to 17. Uh, we're in a series called Grace for the Week. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, what it means to have a culture of forgiveness in the church. What would it look like to give off the aroma of forgiveness? Uh, this week, we're talking about another aroma, uh, another fragrance we're called to give, and that is the fragrance of Christ's victory. And um, so as we look to God's word, I invite you to stand. Um, standing, uh, we do here at Cornerstone, uh, as an act of worship. It shows reverence for God's word as we read and receive it. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, reading verses 12 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ, the God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Join me once more in prayer. God, would you help us to have uh, more than um, understanding, um, but to have conviction, encouragement, and transformation. Do this because uh, the preaching of your word is not a Bible study. It's not a talk nor a lecture. Lord, it is um, worship. So as I preach and as the people receive, let that be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, can you think of a time that you were really self-conscious or insecure uh, being out in public? You know, I think everyone has their own unique things that they're insecure about, things you're really self-conscious about when you're out in public. Um, but we can probably all agree that there are some things that we have in common. Uh, and one of those things is when you know or you think your breath smells. Um, have you ever woken up and in a rush left the house, forgotten to brush your teeth? Um, and so you're self-conscious all day about the odor coming from your mouth. Maybe you ate something really heavy on gar with garlic, uh, and so you're self-conscious of the way that your breath smells. Or it's a really hot day, and uh, you've been working uh, a lot or are running around, and so you're sweating, so you're really conscious of the way you smell. Uh, you know, we all have these kind of um, fears, uh, self-consciousness about the way that we smell and the aroma we give off. I remember uh, growing up, uh, th this was a, a big deal for me. Uh, not that I th think I smelled a lot as a kid, but uh, I do remember, you know, one, uh, as a Korean-American, uh, when my mom would make kimchi jjigae uh, and I forgot to, like, put my jacket in the closet, you know, I would end up catching the smell, and so I would go to church, and I just knew somebody at some point in the day would, you know, go, what is that smell? Uh, and I'd have to, you know, sheepishly put my head down. Uh, but the second thing is also uh, my parents owned a seafood store growing up in Baltimore City, and so I was just around fish all the time and, and just at our, our house smelled like a fish tank, you know? Uh, everything smelled uh, like fish. And so uh, even if I took clothes brand new out of the uh, washer and dryer, as soon as you got in their car, just the, the odor of it got on me uh, and I began to smell. And so, 
you know, I, I remember just always being aware of this, self-conscious of this. Um, but here's what I realized, you know, at, at one point when I actually reflected on that, I realized it wasn't a self-conscious of the way I smelled. I was self-conscious of what that smell indicated about my identity, right? Because smelling like kimchi jiga when you're in elementary school and people went, well, what is that? Reminded me that I was Korean American, that I was different, that my identity was Korean American. Uh, smelling like fish reminded me of this identity that, oh, I'm the son of an immigrant you know, first generation Korean American who came over and is working with his hands. He doesn't have an office job. And so these aromas reminded me of the identity of who I was. And I mentioned this because Paul in our passage talks about an aroma that we're called to have, a smell that we're called to have, a fragrance we're called to give off. And it reminds us of our identity. Paul calls us to be the aroma of Christ, to give off the fragrance of Jesus. The main point of our sermon today is this. You are the aroma of Christ. So spread the fragrance of his victory everywhere you go. You are, dear friends, the aroma of Christ, of Jesus himself. That's your identity. So what's your mission? Spread the fragrance of his victory everywhere you go. And we get to our passage today in 2 Corinthians. And you may have noticed this. Maybe you didn't. Um, but... Verses 12 and 13 have nothing to do with the rest of the verses. Now, I mention this because verses 12 and 13, Paul recounts how he was waiting in the city of Troas, waiting for Titus, uh, a co-worker in the gospel. And then all of a sudden, we, we start reading about the aroma of Christ, and the two seem to have nothing to do with one another. So let's actually read verses 12 and 13. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So if you've been here with us and we've been going to 2 Corinthians, what you know is that Paul went and visited Corinth. He had to, con uh, and in his visit, he had a very painful experience. And so although he was supposed to go again, he refrained from going. Instead, he wrote a letter to them called the severe letter. He wrote a letter rebuking them, calling them to repentance. But because he couldn't go himself, he gave it to Titus, a, a trusted coworker in the gospel. And he said, can you go on my behalf, deliver the letter, see what they say, and let's meet again in Troas. And when we reunite, you can tell me about everything that's happened. And so Paul now is in Troas and he's waiting for Titus. And he's waiting for him to arrive. But while he's there, you know, Paul can't sit still. Paul's a man in action, and so he starts sharing the gospel. He's preaching. He's going you know, to the synagogues and, and, and talking with the Jews. And what we find out is ministry is going really well for Paul. So we read him saying that a door was opened for me and the Lord. Right? Th that meant ministry was going really well. Paul says something similar in his first letter in chapter 16. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And what he means there is that while in Troas, man, gospel ministry, people are hungry for Jesus. The harvest is ripe. A lot of people are interested in learning about Christ. But here's the thing. Ministry is going really well for Paul. People are coming to Jesus. They're interested. They want to hear him talk. You know how uh, of a blessing it is for a preacher to you know, have people who want to hear him preach? It's amazing. So Paul's doing just a fantastic work. But then he says that he's experiencing deep anxiety in his heart. He writes, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And the NIV says, I still had no peace of mind. Meaning he's doing ministry, people are coming to Jesus, people are hungry, but deep down inside, he's worried. What happened to Titus? We were supposed to meet here. And then he starts thinking, 
Did they do something to him? What went down in Corinth when he delivered that letter? Why isn't he back? How bad do things get? And so what Paul does is he leaves Troas. He leaves the gospel opportunity, the wide open doors there in order to go search for Titus. Now, you may not know all the locations in the ancient world, but Troas and Macedonia are two different cities. They're kind of far apart. And Paul is so anxious inside. He says, I'm going to take my chances. I'm just going to leave this city that we were, you know, we agreed to meet in. I'm going to go to that city and hope I find him along the way. Do you remember life before cell phones? Some of you don't because you weren't alive before cell phones. But um, life before cell phones, when you met with somebody, you had to basically say, because you couldn't get in contact with them without a cell phone, you didn't have a pager, you'd have to say, we're going to meet at this corner at this time. It's the only way that you could actually successfully meet up. And so like, I remember, as, uh, for example, when I was a kid, and my mom and I would go to the mall, and she would be looking at, you know, mom clothes, <laughs> as like an eight-year-old kid, just like bored out of my mind. And so I'd say, mom, can I go to this store? Can I go to that store? And she'd say, okay. Well, meet me here in 15 minutes, you know, at 1.15 here at this spot. And she would, you know, for us, that was always JCPenney. It was the first store, uh, the entrance to the mall. And she'd say, meet me here. And I'd go off to my storage and I'd come back and I'd wait. And if she didn't show up, then I would get worried. Right? I'd get really worried. So you wait a little bit, you wait, and then you start kind of walking out and you start worrying. And at one point, you get so worried, what do you do? You say, well, I'm going to take my chance. I know that JCPenney's on one side, Sears is on the other side. I'm going to walk from here to Sears, and along the way, I'm going to stop and look in at every single store and hope that I find her. That's what Paul's doing. He's in Troas. Where's Titus? I have no idea. I can't get in contact with him. This is 2,000 years ago. So I'm going to go to Macedonia, and I'm just going to hope that along the way, I'm going to stop by in every town and every village and see if I find him. And so Paul leaves. He leaves this great ministry opportunity behind. And so the question is, okay, does he find Titus? Where does he find him? How does it turn out? Well, what's verse 14 say? It starts talking about the aroma of Jesus. And you're like, wait, no, no, go back. Wait, did you meet Titus? What's happening there? What in the world is going on? So, okay, maybe, okay, Paul's digressing. You go to chapter 3. And he doesn't talk about it. And you go to chapter four and he doesn't talk about it. And chapter five, he doesn't talk about it. And chapter six, he doesn't talk about it. And it's not until chapter seven, verses five and six, that Paul finally gets back around to Titus. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he meets Titus, but why does it take four chapters apart? And some people who want to prove the Bible wrong say things like, oh, it's because Paul, you know, he wrote some of it, but then some editor came and he found some fragment and inserted it. And you ever get an email and you're reading it in the middle of it, it just doesn't make sense. And you realize, oh, that person, you know, this is a serious email. They're copying and pasting and they were moving a section toward the end, but they accidentally kept it in the middle. And so you're kind of disjointed and people say, oh, that's what Paul's doing. Or that's what the editor's doing. They're, they're uh, messing with Paul's words. But I don't think that's what's happening. If you follow the logic of what Paul is actually saying, it's, it's this. Paul knows that him leaving Troas is going to invite criticism. People are already accusing him. Are you really an apostle? And so he knows, if I, since I left Troas, I left a gospel opportunity, people are going to come and say, how could you, how could you leave? They're, they're hungry for Jesus. And you left because you have anxiety? That's so selfish. And so Paul anticipates that. And so he goes on to say, listen, whether in Troas or everywhere you go, I praise God that he's called me to be a fragrance of him everywhere, not just in Troas, 
everywhere we're called to be. Whether in Troas, whether in Corinth, whether in Macedonia, whether you're at work, whether in your classroom, whether you're waiting at the doctor's office, you're called to be the fragrance of Christ everywhere you go. And so that's why he writes in verse 14, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the only gospel opportunity isn't in Troas, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul thanks God that wherever Christians are, wherever Christians go, God calls us to make that our mission field. A mission field is not over there. A mission field is wherever your two feet are planted. Look up, there, there's your mission field. You know, like for example, Deacon Andy prayed about how we're sending a team to Cambodia. We're going to Cambodia because there's a great open door in Cambodia. Cambodia is ripe for the harvest of the gospel of Jesus. And so we're put, pulling our resources, getting people to commit, flying them. You know, I think the flight is 23 hours to Cambodia. The team is full, unfortunately. And that means 95% of you aren't going. But we can say, but thanks be to God that you don't have to fly overseas to spread the fragrance of Christ. You're called to do it right where you are in your neighborhood and your cul-de-sac to your friends and your family, to your coworker and your colleagues and your teammates, your classmates. Where do I, where am I called to spread the fragrance of Christ? In my homeroom? In my dorms, on my campus? While I talk to other parents waiting for my kids to do karate? On the mats while I do karate with my kids? At the pool during the swim meets? Paul's saying, I thank God that everywhere we go, we're called to spread the fragrance of Christ. Now, it's interesting because you would think Paul would just say something like this. Why doesn't he just say, um, evangelize, share the gospel, spread the message of Christ? Instead, he uses the language, the fragrance, spread the fragrance. Now, the reason Paul does that is because the image he's working off of is what's called the Roman triumphus. Right? We read about it, verse 14, it says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So it was a Roman custom that uh, the army would go, they would defeat their enemies, they would come back into uh, the city, they would ask the emperor, can we have a triumphal procession, right? Sort of like a, a championship parade. And we want to go into the city. And so the mighty general and his great stallion would lead the parade, his victorious soldiers behind him. Then there would be those uh, who are uh, throwing flowers and burning incense so that people, you know, smell the victory. And then behind him, very last, were the conquered captive um, enemies who were being led to their execution. That's what is what the Roman triumph is. That's the triumphal procession. And so in that analogy, who's the general on the mighty stallion? At this point, you should know it's not, it's not you. It's Jesus. He's the mighty warrior, the mighty king who's won the victory. And, but there's a lot of debate on who are we in this? And some people say, well, we're the soldiers behind him who take up arms and, and, and we have the victory too. And, and other people say, no, actually, uh, we are the captives, that we were rebellious against God, but we've been captive to his will. And, and, and you know, I think Paul gives the answer in verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ. Who are you in the procession? You're, you're the fragrance. You're the smell that's going up because what did the fragrance alert? That if you're in your home and you smell the fragrance, you go, the processional is coming. Victory is being signaled, right? The smell, the incense, the aroma 
was the note into the community, into the city, that Christ has won a victory. And in his victory, you have victory. It's a good announcement that in Jesus, there's a peace and security and freedom and now stability for the empire. There's hope and there's life. And so here comes Jesus and he's triumphant. The question is, who's he triumphant against? Paul gives us a clue in Colossians 2. He uses the same word for triumphal procession, but he uses it like this. He writes in Colossians 2, 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So who is Jesus victorious over? It's his spiritual enemies. What is the good news, the great declaration? It's that Jesus has defeated Satan. Jesus has overcome evil. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has won against death. And, and this is good news. It's good news because his victory over all these things means your victory over those things. You know, we are very concerned that the gospel is applied to your everyday life. Like, we really want it to matter that you understand how the gospel affects your nine to five, right? Your Monday to Saturday. But often, in our concern and preoccupation that the gospel relates to the personal things in life, that we sometimes forget and lose the significance, the cosmic significance of the simple fact that Jesus has won and he's the victor. Like, it's good news. I hope you all know this Jesus who promises that there's comfort in the midst of suffering, that there's peace in your anxieties, that there's hope in the midst of your questions and doubts, that there's, you have worth even though you feel low self-esteem, that there's fullness in your emptiness, that there's purpose in your aimlessness. Praise God that the gospel connects with your everyday life. But you also have to know, Jesus isn't just a personal savior who grants me personal victories. Instead, we must know that Jesus Christ has a, won a great victory over sin and all the trickle-down blessings are what we experience. But we need to start with that. Christ victory in his death and resurrection over sin and Satan and death. And it's important. Jesus died for your sins. But you must also know that the Son of God was slain so that the serpent's head would be crushed and that the sting of death would be removed and that sin's enslaving grip would be broken. And then the Son of God was raised to eternal glory so that in his resurrection, you might have eternal hope. You see, this is the gospel. It's the good news of Christ's victory. And it's only as you believe his victory that then you experience his victory in your own life. That it marks you because you're not living out of defeat. You're living out of Christ's victory. It gives you a certain fragrance. You know, you live as one who knows you've won in Christ and therefore any loss that you experience in this life is temporary. That you're ultimately victorious in Jesus and so no earthly defeat you taste is ever the last word. That in Jesus you are more than conquerors and so the despair and hopelessness of right now is not final. It changes everything. Remember a few weeks ago, the Powerball, I don't know how many of you were tempted to get in on that. Somebody won it. 
$2 billion. $2 billion. Now, it doesn't matter how much taxes you have to pay, 50, 80. I mean, if you win that much money, your life is going to change. How can it not? Only the ignorant would win such a prize and not understand how their life is different. You know, what would change in your day-to-day if you won the $2 billion Powerball? Right? The certain things you, you once feared, you would no longer fear. Your ability to be generous and, and practice generosity, that would be changed. The things that you used to complain about, they wouldn't bother you anymore. Because if you have this, if you've won this prize, it changes so much of your life. Like, I, I can't imagine that somebody would win the $2 billion Powerball and then lament the fact that Dollar Tree prices are now $1.25. Or somebody would win the $2 billion Powerball and say, I can't go on that road trip anymore because gas prices are simply too expensive. In the victory, in the win, you would have new opportunities, new freedoms, new abilities, new securities. To be a Christian means that you live in Christ's victory. The gospel is the ultimate powerball. The gospel is the ultimate win. It's the ultimate life and destiny changer. And to live in light of Christ's victory that he accomplished on the cross means that today you live in his triumph. In Christ's victory, God redeems you from slavery to sin. So there's power to resist and conquer that which you once felt powerless against. In Christ's victory, God takes away all the guilt of your failures that loom over you and weigh heavy on your head and gives you a freedom to live without condemnation. In Christ's victory, God shows you how much he loved you, not when you were most lovable and on your good behavior, but when you were most despicable is when he came and embrace you in Christ's victory. God delights to sing a song and a melody over you so your ears no longer hear the voice of accusation or a sentence of judgment. In Christ's victory, God walks with you all the days of your life so that the frightful, dark, and dangerous path you're on will lead to green pastures. Christ's victory assures you that God has given you an imperishable inheritance of the riches in heaven and that will outlast any earthly treasure in this world that you could work for and possess and hoard. When you are victorious in Christ, when you actually believe it and you live out of his victory, then nothing in your life can stay the same. And when nothing in your life can stay the same, you give off an aroma. You give off a fragrance. You give off a distinct smell that sets you apart from the rest of the world. Your presence in meetings at work or over Zoom, your conduct among coworkers or classmates, your speech among friends, and the way you talk to your spouse and your children, your goals and aspirations that you are driving after, the posture of your heart and your attitude when you argue with people, the ethics of what you will stand up for, your values of what you will lay down your life for, all of that changes because it's lived out of the victory in Christ. You remember the sweetness of life in Philadelphia in 2018 when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. It was a good time to live in Philadelphia. Everybody lived in the joy of that victory, didn't they? 
And some of you were at the triumphal procession in the city. If you notice, after 2018, for the following months, man, people's steps had a little more pep to it. The cold winter, it's a little warmer. The gloomy days passed a little quicker. You know, I had people, friends, family visit Philadelphia and tell me, I don't know what you're talking about. The people here are splendid. <laughs> Life was different because people lived in the victory. Two weeks ago, the Phillies lost in the World Series. <laughs> What's life been like in the weight of their defeat? Well, quite literally, after the last game, daylight savings. <laughs> the days started to feel shorter. <laughs> the sun began to set faster. The darkness stays around a little longer. You felt it this morning, the weather. It bites a little, <laughs> a little sharper. Because living in defeat then colors your experience. My simple point is this. If the experience of a city is victory or defeat changes the way that we live, how much more does the cosmic victory of Jesus Christ over sin, death, and Satan affect your life today? You become, therefore, the aroma of Christ to the world because you live differently. You live as one forgiven in Christ, and so you're one who forgives. You live as one rich in Christ, and so you're able to give. You live as one loved in Christ, and so you're freed from trying to earn the love of others, but you love self-sacrificially. You live as one who knows you're accepted in Jesus, so you can rest from the pressure to earn or impress others. The result is, as you live according to the victory of Christ, you give off a fragrance. Now, the reality is to some, it'll be a fragrance of life, and to others, it'll be a fragrance of death. Now, what's the determining factor? It's not you. Let's read verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we're the aroma of Christ regardless. But something about that person will determine that to some, it'll be fragrance from death to death, and to others, it'll be fragrance from life to life. You know, for those who receive Jesus in faith, his victory will be your victory. And you'll experience it as wonderfully liberating and freeing and hopeful and promising. The fragrance will be life to you as it leads you to eternal life. But to those who resist and reject Jesus in unbelief, his victory then signals your defeat. Because in the end, if you don't stand with Jesus, you're standing against Jesus. And so the fragrance will be like death to those who are perishing. It's a sobering reality. The sobering reality is this. Every single person in the world will be a part of the triumphal procession one day, whether they like it or not. They will either be marching with Jesus, enjoying his victory on the path to everlasting life, or they will be the conquered captive foe, rebellious against Jesus, being led to their perishing. Now, that's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable news to preach. It's uncomfortable news to receive. But there is good news in this. One of those good news is this. That day has not yet come. Christ in his mercy has delayed his coming. And until that day comes, Jesus calls and invites people to himself. He invites people to come under the wing of his protection and the safety that there is in him. That's the work Jesus is up to in the world. But the question is, is how is he doing that work? 
He's calling his people to be the aroma of Christ. Spread news and the fragrance of his victory that there is life and hope, peace and joy in him. You see, whether you're in Troas like Paul was, or whether you're going to be around the Thanksgiving table this Tuesday or this Thursday as you celebrate with family and friends, you're called to be the aroma of Christ there. You're called to be the aroma of Christ among the, the Pharisees you know in your life, but also the prodigals you know in your life, the legalists you know in your life, and the lawless you know in your life, the church you know in your life, and the unchurched and the de-church you know in your life. You're called to be the fragrance of Christ among those who are hurting and among those who are healing, among those who are seeking and among those who are running away. Be the fragrance of Christ among them. And as you think, because I know often in Thanksgiving, we meet with family, friends, and there are always people there who don't yet know Jesus and it burdens your heart. They don't know yet the love and the life there is in Christ you need to remember that it's not up to you whether you will smell to them like life or death. That, that's beyond your control. That's not your burden to bear. You know, because Paul was thinking about this going, oh my gosh, all I'm called to be is the fragrance of Christ, but whether they're going to smell me as life or they're going to smell me as, as death, that's burdensome. So what does Paul say in verse 16? Who is sufficient for these things? Who can do it? I sure as heck can't do it. And yet there is one who can. God can do it. God alone can change our heart, and yet he's called me to a faithfulness. What is that faithfulness? Paul says, for we are not, verse 17, we are not like so many, we're not peddlers of God's word. Peddlers of God's word were those who were uh, trying to change the message for personal gain. They were trying to water down the gospel, take away its offensiveness so that people might like it and pay money to hear more of it. But Paul comes along and he says, no, we're men of sincerity. We're commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. We need to be faithful to the gospel. Paul's saying God alone is sufficient to change hearts. So I don't need to worry about changing the message and I don't need to try to do God's work for him. I can't do it better than him. But what am I called to be? Faithful where God has called me to the people he's called me to. So dear friends, be the aroma of Christ. Live in the victory of Jesus, our living hope. Spread his fragrance to the world around you, the people around you, and all the places where you live and you work and you play and you rest and you eat. Be the aroma of Christ and spread the fragrance of his victory to the world. Let's pray.